Well, friends, a number of weeks ago, you remember I talked about John the Baptist and the quote from Isaiah 40, where he talked about lifting the valleys up and lowering the mountains, making the rough places smooth and the crooked places straight. And today, out of the Gospel of Luke, we hear in more specific terms a response to the question, so then what should we do? Lift valleys in the lives of people, lower the mountains that they are facing, the rough places, the crooked places. What should we do? And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. There was one who asked the question, and what shall I do? And this opportunity revealed itself to him, and it took some effort to accomplish what he accomplished. But listen to this story. It's somewhat familiar, but just as Linda reads it, try and visualize what this must have looked like or felt like. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, Do you understand what you are reading? He replied, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So did you get the visual picture on that? Uh, You remember what a chariot looks like or feels like? Do you remember those of you that watched Ben-Hur? Now, as I said, first of all, these are not those chariots with the big spiky things coming out the side. You know, Philip would not want to be near that. But this call comes to Philip. And how many of us, when we, when we receive a call, even if it's the still small voice or sometimes the glaring voice of God, to say, we have work to do and I have something for you to take on, stop for a minute and say, nah. Stop for a minute and ignore. Stop for a minute and turn the other direction. 
And yet here is Philip who responds to that. And I see as the chariot is, is going along the road and this official is trying to struggle with what it all means. Reading out of Isaiah. And can you see Philip finally jogging up alongside the chariot? Maybe sprinting up alongside the chariot and saying, do you understand what it is that you're reading? And this official says, how can I understand unless somebody explains it to me? And because of that question and because of that effort, Philip is invited to the chariot, invited into this sacred official space. And there they are, these two from completely different countries, completely different backgrounds, sharing about God in the midst of a very challenging time. For this was the time in the early church where the persecution had begun. And yet here is a courageous Philip jumping on board, explaining in the midst of the danger the good news of God seeking this relationship with this official from Ethiopia. Or if you go back to then Luke's gospel and you hear those words, what are we to do? And so poignantly what John does, John the Baptist shares to each specific population. And as Linda read that, could you not see the ropes extending out from that tennis ball? saying, ah, here's one piece, and here is another, and here is another, and yet another, and another, and understanding that we all, every single one of us, have a role in creating that balance, creating that sacred space, creating that place where the ministries can be done because of our connection not only to each other, but to the much greater body. Over the last number of weeks, we have talked about a lot of things. And remember five weeks ago, I started asking you to memorize one verse. You remember that verse? Acts 1. Thank you so much. Wait for power from on high. Then go and be my witnesses to Jerusalem, your local community. To all of Judea, your region, and Samaria, that place that feels so uncomfortable for you. And then to the ends of the earth. And over these last five weeks, we've talked specifically about some of those pieces. The staff, the facility, the outreach that we do. And today I want to celebrate the symbol represented by that cross and that flame. United Methodist. It was a number of years ago, now about 21 or 22 years ago, where I remember walking into Howard University Hospital. I was working as a consultant for the Council of Bishops at that point and was trying to introduce them to some of the senators in D.C. as well as to Howard University Hospital, one of the few hospitals in the nation that had a cocaine-addicted baby ward. Cocaine-addicted babies are the most difficult population to deal with because they are born without emotional chips. They cannot, they cannot stop emoting. And you could hear the cries of these babies as we walked down the hall. And I was followed by a number of folks and entered into this room, and we met this saintly, 
saintly woman who was holding two of the babies. And as I talked about the community and our role in the midst of what not only created this situation, but what we could do to respond to this situation, suddenly the woman handed me one of those babies. It was overwhelming. And as I sat with this baby and she offered the rocking chair as I talked about, again, what created this, an overwhelming need to be in ministry because the church was the only place I could think of that could deal with this family, this child on every conceivable level. It was a powerful call. As I flew home then, as I've shared with you before and talked to our bishop, our bishop here then, Cal McConnell, what I realized was that there was one denomination that I felt could really serve this family and this child and that community in ways that were unlike any other. And it was the United Methodists. Yep, I grew up in the United Methodist Church, but in that call, I then began to look at other denominations finally coming full circle to say, this is where it can happen more readily than anywhere else. Why? Because of the incredibly strong connection that ties every one of us together, not just at Aldersgate, not just in the Seattle District or the Pacific Northwest Annual Conference, but really throughout the world. And many of you know, those of you who have been in United Methodist churches for a long time, know about our apportionments, that every church in the connection, every church in the denomination takes a portion of what they receive, pours that into this incredible pool where what Dorothy and I give combines with almost 9 million other givers through the work of this church, which takes us to the region, to places that would make us very uncomfortable, like that place where that cocaine-addicted baby was born. And to the rest of the world, we give a portion that is meant for others. That is, I think, the best way that we look at apportionments. But what I want to talk about is the strength of that connection and what it does throughout the connection. Our youth group went to Salt Lake City last summer and helped build kits that were sent out globally. And part of the apportionment monies goes toward the work of UMCOR. I shared with First Service and I share again. I was there in Lexington, just north of Kelso, on May 18, 1980. And do you remember what happened on May 18, 1980? It was perfect. That's what happened. And I remember driving south right along the Cowlitz River, and I didn't hear it, but I saw the mountain explode. And we got to church on that Sunday morning and knew that there was no way that we could have worship. And one of the calls that we made was to UMCOR. Friends, they were there that afternoon with blankets ready. They were there before the Red Cross, ready for whatever was going to happen. And I was so proud that day to be a United Methodist because it wasn't just for the United Methodist Church. It was for the entire community. But UMCOR was there because of some of the dollars from this church. I looked it up this week and also saw that we have just under 1,000 missionaries going into the world. 
And missionaries today don't just beat people over the head with Bibles. Missionaries today go in and help communities throughout the globe come to terms with malaria, offer nets and protection, help them understand how to dig wells and follow up on that, that, the wells that are dug to help them understand the importance of clean water, helping young mothers as they're bringing children into the world and need help. And it's the apportionment dollars that we pool together, that we bring together, that help allow those missionaries to do their work. Throughout the connection, there are young high school students who look at their lives and think there is absolutely no way that they can go to college until they see that there are places and universities where they can attend because of the work of the United Methodist Church. I don't brag on the United Methodist Church very often, but I should. It is powerful what we do. Powerful what we do. I even think about this university now in Africa. And I remember when it began, and it has become one of the most respected universities, not just in Africa, but throughout the globe because of what it offers. These are just a few examples. Let me give you one more because my dad is in this situation. The other thing these dollars do is it supports some of our pastors in retirement. Now, he was lucky enough to be in churches where he could be fully supported throughout his ministry, but not everyone is there. I know of friends not only here, but in Central and Southern California, in Arizona, and even across the United States, for whom retirement is a terrifying thing for them. Because they lived in parsonages their whole lives, and now they're faced with, now what do we do in retirement? And part of what we do is support them to make sure that they have some way to survive after serving so sacrificially for so many years. And it is a part of what we do together, a portion meant for others. The other thing about the United Methodist Church that is so impressive to me is that, that we offer other kinds of opportunities within that connection to be supportive in outreach in other ways. And one of the most powerful organizations that I know is the, the United Methodist Foundation of the Northwest. And Tom Wilson is here with us this morning to share some about what that organization does. Tom has been with them for about 20 years. And the other thing I want to share with you is that Daryl Lowe, our own Daryl Lowe, is the president of the board for the foundation. So I want to invite Tom to come up, and we're going to have a little conversation about what the foundation does and how it does, in fact, strengthen the connection. Tom, welcome again. They drove all the way across the state this morning to be here with us. So thank you for that. So you and I have talked, and we've already done one service together, and so... I just want to ask you some similar questions um, as what we talked about in our first service. Talk a little bit about the opportunities that folks like these can have in Aldersgate to either a living legacy or giving and, and how the foundation comes into play with those kinds of things. Well, um, I'm fortunate in my job in that I have this great opportunity to work with people who understand giving 
people whose lives have been changed by their experiences uh, in their church, and people who are asking now, what can, I, what can I do? How can I make a difference? A lot of these people are persons who have found abundance in their lives. And so they're asking questions such as, what can I do during my life? Or maybe what can I do upon my death that will help that place, that ministry that had such a huge effect on my life uh, be able to continue to carry on? And so people do that in a variety of, of ways. As I said, through, through their death, a lot of people recognize the church in a bequest, just simply saying, I want this to go to my church. Uh, others like the idea of an endowment, an endowment which will provide income then to that church for years and years to come. So some simple ways that I can talk about that. I mentioned this morning a couple over in eastern Washington uh, who, who have both uh, died within the last year or two, but both lived to 100 and 101. Wow. And so I think they were about 70 when they decided that they had received every kind of birthday and Christmas gift <laughs> that you could possibly get and were tired of those neckties and whatever it is that, that they're being given. So they chose to set up an endowment with the foundation. And what they asked all of their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, it may have even gone into another generation, to do was that each time it became their, bir- or it came their birthdays or Christmas or whatever, that instead of buying them a gift, they would prefer that they send money to the foundation to be put into an endowment that they created, which then would help uh, the Lazy F camp in the, in the ministry that they have. Uh, over about uh, 20 years of, of doing that, of receiving a lot of $25 and $50 uh, gifts, uh, their endowment amounted to more than $40,000 by the time they passed away. And it lays you up a place that is very dear to our hearts, right? And, and here's one way that even the camp is supported by this. Yeah. Well, how about local churches? I mean, uh, you and I have been in a relationship for 20 years, and there have been times that, uh, that I know you have helped some of the churches where I've served, what does the foundation do to assist local churches, per se? Okay. Well, first, the, the core of our, of our work is to go into local churches and help them establish giving uh, programs, endowment programs, that uh, are administered well, that have uh, policies that, that honor people's gifts and, and that uh, administer and manage those gifts in proper ways. Uh, and we help uh, churches to promote those in, in proper ways. Uh, we go beyond that, though, in that there's subsidiary uh, uh, work that we do that just happens to be related to, to our core uh, work, uh, and that might be uh, the loan program uh, that we have with local churches. Uh, it might be the uh, investment management uh, that we do with local churches. It may be just working in this whole area of stewardship and how we live our lives, uh, uh, that every expression of our lives is, is out of stewardship. You gave, you gave two examples this morning of, of yeah. two churches where you really, I mean, in many ways, allowed them to both stay put and in one case really save them. Uh, yeah. Can you talk just briefly sure, about those? Sure, sure. Both of those examples had to do with our loan portfolio. And uh, one of the examples is a church that, that uh, I get to visit next week. I can hardly wait. It's the Crossroads Church down in Kimberly, Idaho, very southern uh, area of Idaho. Uh, in 2007, the church decided to, uh, to set out into this project of building a new building. 
everything looked good at that time. The area was, was uh, really booming. Real estate market was, was uh, amazing. And so they decided that they would buy a piece of property large enough to build a new church on, but also large enough to develop uh, 25 building lots in it. And they would use the, the gains from the sale of those building lots to pay uh, a part of the cost of the church. Well, all of you know what happened in 2008, and we know what happened to the real estate market. This was a church uh, that uh, in November of last year was in foreclosure. A beautiful, beautiful brick building. They owed a <clears throat> million dollars was all. And when I say was all, you all know what it costs to build something like this today. And we would have lost that building for lack of a million dollars. And unfortunately, the foundation found itself in a place where working with some other entities, uh, we were able to go in, uh, lend them money, find some money uh, for them that uh, they would not have to pay interest on at all. And like I say, next week we'll worship there. It was a, a great experience. Well, you talked about, that's a, that's a significant sized church, I think. And how about a small church example? Yeah, well, there's the Little Rock Church. That would be a small church. That, that if I remember right, the building that Little Rock has is the second oldest church building that we have in our conference. And uh, small, small community, small building, they needed $8,000 to finish a siding project that they really wanted to get done before they went into winter this year. And so million-dollar projects, $8,000 projects, we don't care. The fact of the matter is, is that um, what our hope is is that we can, uh, can, can be uh, in partnership with them in their ministries. And so we loaned them $8,000 uh, to do that work and, again, drove by that church a couple weeks ago, and it's looking good. Well, you remember, you know, in, in the message, you heard the scripture of Philip basically walking alongside the chariot, and, and Tom and I have talked. It's just that's what I feel about the foundation is they, they, they do seek to walk alongside churches to support them, to have answers for them, to, to strengthen them, to do those kinds of things. Now, I understand, too, that, and we didn't get to this in first service, that last time you were here, you were graded. Is <laughs> that was. right? I was. I don't know how many of you remember, but almost 10 years ago, I was here speaking to you about the Indianola camp campaign. And I, I don't know that I remember exactly how it happened, but out in your narthex, before coming in to speak, I got into a conversation with a young girl who must have been 8 to 10 years old, somewhere around there. And uh, maybe it was because I was nervous uh, uh, with speaking after the great pastors that this church has had the benefit to have. But uh, uh, after the service, she came up to me and she asked me for my notes. Now, and, and I was That's talking dangerous. to other people, just... and so, so, so I gave her those notes. And I brought them with me this morning. Because what she did is she came back and gave them back to me with an A plus uh, <laughs> at the top. And I, I guess I, I, I did want to talk about that a little bit to say that I, I know that we're speaking about um, what the connection uh, does. What I want you to all understand is our connection is made stronger because of you. I mean, I took this for the last 10 years. This has been uh, uh, in, in my desk. I've referred to it a number of times because it inspires me. I know that, uh, that the work Daryl does with the found, uh, foundation. I know the work Linda does with, with CFNA. 
the work that I've had the, the fortunate uh, uh, luck to be involved in with Jenny uh, Phillips has, has all been work that has blessed the conference. You all give back, and you give back in such a way well, that- Well, plus that, we have the privilege that, of having your stepbrother here. Right? Is that right? <laughs> that's right, that's right. Brand Henshaw has become my stepbrother because there have been times that we've looked so familiar that people have come up and asked me about things that Brant deals with and <laughs> asked him about things that I deal with. So we're connected in many ways here, and that's a pleasure and a privilege. Anything else you'd want us to know about the foundation? Well, I, I think that what I would want you to know is we very much see our work as a ministry, and um, we, we believe that strongly. We know that we are blessed uh, to have the privilege of working with people uh, such as you all who, whose lives uh, have been blessed by what happens within these walls, and that the, uh, as, a, as a result of that, uh, you have become people who, who have incredible gratitude in, in your hearts and are incredibly generous. Um, I don't know much better work that, that I could have ever asked to be in. And so, um, If you look at the slide behind us, it says, on this journey together, we're all on this journey together, and what strengthens that journey is work like what you do, Tom, and, and others around who, who just seek to continue to strengthen ministry opportunities. And it is such a, a humbling privilege to be a part of a denomination where the two of us can share in ministry together as well as so many others. So thank you. Can we thank Tom for being here this morning? Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Absolutely. Well, let me close with this thought this morning. There is another place where our apportionment dollars work, and it has an absolute influence on Aldersgate. We have three people right now in various levels of a process toward becoming pastors. And part of the money that we give to the church goes to that, those opportunities. They are three women. You know, Jen Peterson is one, and she has now formalized her relationship, is moving through the process of examination, now meeting in front of the district committee on ministry who will interview her and then she'll go before uh, the next committee which is the one where I serve on the board of ordained ministry and isn't a privilege there Laura Wall Laura Wall Mart Martine's mom Laura Wall has just submitted a letter to the staff parish to say I feel called to ministry in the United Methodist Church she is just beginning this process and it, she is appropriately terrified. Remember being terrified? Yeah. And then we have Carrie Bland, who has begun her first year of seminary. And yet also connected to the church are folks like Jenny Phillips, who is doing amazing work around creation change and looking at environmental issues within the connection, but even beyond the connection called to that level of ministry. Or Larry Blackstock, who is now serving as the pastor at Grace in Seattle. Or Shannon Hamrick, who has just moved here with her husband, Tom. Tom is serving as the attorney for REI. Shannon is an ordained deacon who is now examining, because of the connection, what her role will be not only at Aldersgate, but in this area this annual conference. You sense the strength of the connection. You see why it is so important that we not only support the work of the local church, 
But that work combined with the work of thousands of other churches is having a huge influence on the world. Now let me, let me go full circle. What we heard last Thursday night about the needs of the city of Bellevue will have a direct influence on what we need to do as a church. And your giving will help support that kind of ministry as well now right here in Bellevue to feed the thousands of children who are in need of food and quality nutrition. So as we finish our stewardship time, as we come together next Sunday, I encourage you, if you have not already, to fill out your cards, but don't do it alone. If there is someone else in your household, whether your husband or partner or wife or children, that you involve them in this discussion, but that you take the time, friends, to stop as we do in worship, to pray, and to look at the incredible opportunity and future we have at this church to influence, to impact, to feed, to house, to clothe, as we are members of the United Methodist Church and of the greater body of Christ. Pray with me. God of all creation, I again just thank you for the work of the foundation. There have been two churches where I have served where they have been the heroes. They have helped us in such significant ways. I ask your blessing on Tom as he continues to help direct and serve, really, knowing his heart is more about service. And Daryl, as he seeks to be that voice for what the foundation needs to be. Now I ask your blessing on each, each one of us. We come to those points of decisions on our support of this church. Guide us in those decisions. Guide us as a church. Strengthen us as we look ahead. This body of Christ. All this I ask again. In the name of the one that we seek to follow, Jesus Christ.